for August 3rd, 2009. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 57, Kids Today and Their Rainbow Parties. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From sunny Los Angeles, California, where even the checkout bagger people at the grocery store have agents, uh, I am your host, Matthew Rather, and it is Shark Week, my friends. It is my favorite week all week. (laughs) So let's uh, let's check in with the panel and see how they are celebrating Shark Week from the other side of the country, the other edge of America. It is Mr. Peter Fenzel. A uh, solemn and reflective Shark Week to you too, Mr. Rather. Uh, <laughs> I, I find this week is a good time to reflect on uh on the moments in our lives where we might be ourselves sharks for they say sharks must always swim and never stop and and do we always swim ourselves and never stop always feeding lest they die exactly lest they die I, i feel like shark week is a powerful metaphor for all of us of the disconnects in the human condition and the hunger that we all face and you want to celebrate that but you want to treat it with appropriate gravitas you know and 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 gravity and 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 gravitar if you've got it um, which it, either the Avatar program or the Atari game uh, about the guy about the crazy planets that you or the uh, wasn't there also a uh, a musical instrument? I think a actually, gravitar? yes, Stokes called the Gravatar. I think Stokes's Gravatar is actually a Gravatar, like uh, a thing for the musical instrument. Kind of like Stokes's a keytar, Gravatar. Isn't it? Stokes' Gravatar is the cover of the arcade game Gravatar. Oh, of the, arta- of the arcade, <laughs> arcade of the Atari game. game. Da, da, da. Of the Atari game Gravatar. Atari but game anyway, Gravatar. just to answer your question, I'm lighting the ceremonial candelabra of shark wax, and I am eating <laughs> the ceremonial mako steaks um, that I've prepared, and I'm running around in circles and never stopping, which is perhaps why I feel a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably get those at you know your local Japanese market. Don't they catch sharks? Or was it just dolphins? Was it just adorable dolphins that they killed? I love shark. I love Mako shark. I used to go to this place called Mako Mike's down in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. If it's still there, go there because it's got killer food. And that's what my T-shirt said. When did it was you my go t-shirt. to? Uh, when did you go to North Carolina? We used to go. My family used to go every year when I was a kid. So this was like up through like 1998, maybe. I see. So it's like the Florida of Jersey. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Except, of course, different from you know. Florida is still part of the picture. It's not completely transposed. Got it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're more likely to run into people from Bergen County, New Jersey, and the Outer Banks than people from mainland North Carolina, I found. So, yeah, so. I mean, I can't go to Florida anymore now that I live on the West Coast because Hawaii is the Florida of the West Coast. Really? You mean they have a lot of retired Jewish old people in, in Hawaii also? No, it's, it's where we go for like a week of, of beach vacation. Oh, that seems oh, very expensive. That. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, look, I've got to keep running around in circles here and feeding on, on small fish. Oh, okay, yeah, so, so I'll, move, I'll move on. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I'll only remark to say that there's some, uh, there's some good uh, deals these days. And you can ride a shark to, uh, to Hawaii as well. Oh, really? That's yes. amazing. Skyping in from the, uh, the outer banks of New York City, uh, from the outer boroughs, it is Mr. Mark Lee. How did the move go, Mark? 
Uh, all in all, not so bad. You may have I'm heard hearing... that I was moving as well. You had to show me up, didn't you? Don't, you? you don't say. Oh, that's right. Yes, you may have mentioned it. I don't know, five or six or seven times. Hundred times. <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, how'd yours go? All in all, told it was it was relatively painless. Uh, you know, it, it definitely rained on all the times in which either myself or my roommate was moving in. But we're here. We're settling into uh, sunny Park Slope. Brooklyn, which means I am uh, I've become one of the you know self righteous and judgmental uh, rich liberals, which inhabit this little corner of Brooklyn. You so are a, you are you I, a hipster? Plus, are you officially a hipster now? Do hipsters live no, in no, Park no, Slope? No, 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 no. Park Slope is is decidedly for the most part hipster free. We're talking about the- yuppies with strollers and babies and fancy brownstones. That's Park Slope. Got it. So that's one of the nice parts of Brooklyn, because my, my friends who live in New York tell me that despite all the talk about Brooklyn being, you know, an affordable and cool place to move, there's really only a couple neighborhoods that are, are nice and everything else is still just a haven for, you know, drugs and crime. It, or hipsters. So, so, or, or hipsters. So, I mean, A, is that true? And B, if true, are you living in the nice part? There's a there is a portion of truth to that statement, and uh, you know, to the portion of that statement that is true, I am living in one of those nice parts. Okay, cool. I don't think that that statement. There's lots of places in Brooklyn that are not very rich that are also fairly safe because they're pretty closely knit communities, right? Well, Brooklyn um, is freaking huge, though. Is everything? Yeah, Brooklyn's enormous. Brooklyn is bigger than Manhattan, like both in population and in size by a considerable margin, right? Um, yes. I think Queens is the most populous borough, I believe, right? But I have a question for you, Mark. As someone who moved into Yuppie Town, when does a yuppie cease to be yup? Like, when does a yuppie cease young. to be a young professional? Like, when are you no longer young, and when are you just a pee, and you're no longer a yuppie? Oh, man. I would say probably when your kids are, uh, when your kids are going to high school. Doesn't the U stand oh, for something? Totally like the U stands for urban, but you remain urban. So you're an <laughs> oh, you're okay. an uppy. An uppy. Yeah. Right, right, right. Is it right, upper, right. upwardly mobile? No, I young young urban professional. Young urban professional. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, right? but, this is, but if this... these people are having their kids in yeah. Oh, this this isn't about this isn't about Brooklyn, this is about Shark Week. Let's let's uh <laughs> True, true. They're coming for you. They're swimming <laughs> this is the water here. And, and I got to say that uh, Shark Week has always offended me because I, uh, for the longest time, have been the observer of the same, very same week of Richard Dreyfus Week. <laughs> of the sworn enemy, uh, the sworn enemy of the shark. Um, they, they never accommodate your faith, do they? No, well, they never do. So I, I'm not celebrating Shark Week, and I am because um, I've been celebrating Richard Dreyfus Week this time. So I, uh, I, I'm in protest here. This is my. What's you your favorite Richard Dreyfuss movie? Uh, besides Jaws. Well, I mean, <laughs> there besides, yeah. uh, <laughs> Mr. Holland's Opus. Come on. <laughs> well, he what was. What about uh, I'm Bob? At, <laughs> he was Dick Cheney in uh, in W in the recent movie about George W. Bush as well. Nah. But there were no sharks in that movie either. So, um, not literal sharks. Not literal sharks. Mr. John Parrish. Yo. <laughs> Sorry, were you about to go on, Mark? No, I was going to make a joke about how there were, there were some jets in that movie, but no sharks. Uh, you know, jets kinds of uh, bomb Iraq ra- as opposed to. You got to hit that faster, man. You got to jump on that, dude, or we're going to yeah. stomp all over you. <laughs> Sorry, life's like just slowed down here. You know, I moved to Brooklyn. I'm not living in Manhattan anymore. I'm not so fast paced with my, you know, sex in the city lifestyle anymore. 
Wow. So you, you own a lot of shoes? I mean, what is the Sex in the City lifestyle? Uh, you know, having sex in the city, apparently. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I hope you're living that lifestyle. Otherwise, it sounds like a drag. Well, but we've, we, yeah, I mean, we, we've done our sex podcast already and we've talked about virginity and what a curse it is. Curse. Okay, I'm done. You're gonna <laughs> respond, Mark. Mark, you need to respond faster if you're going to respond to these questions. Mr. John Perich. What up, what up, what up? How are you Yo, doing? You, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, I, have, I have not moved this weekend or in recent memory. I think I'm the only person on the podcast who has not moved or is not about to move. Still living in your parents' house? Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Mom. Actually, no, I, I live... hey oh. No, let's let's not let's not create lies. No, I live in a, a pretty sweet studio in uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not too oh, well, not too far from where Pete used to live. But where does Pete live now? Pete, or where are you moving to, Peter? Well, I'm actually just moving downstairs inside of my apartment. Um, so we have a four bedroom, two floor, and I'm moving from the ground floor into the basement uh, because we're shuffling things around a little bit. So oh, I'm just mixing it up, just mixing it up to make it more interesting, huh? Exactly. It's going to be. Get, it's do you get more space or something? Uh, I get better heat in the winter, and I get um, better air conditioning in the summer. And the other trade-off is that the person who's moving in is one of my roommate's girlfriends, and so they're going to have rooms that are next to each other so that we don't have to, you know, we can have a little personal space for each other. So Aww. it's very exciting. It's a fun time. But I need to figure out what to do about my carpet, now, and Pete, that was just referencing. Yeah. There's, there's kind of a grammatical quibble that I have with the phrase, one of my roommate's girlfriends. Okay. Is it and, one of my roommate's... <laughs> Girlfriends or uh, one of the girlfriends of my roommate? Um, well, Implying that he has multiple girlfriends. That's true. I guess it's a bit of a dangling modifier, which is why they need to be in their own separate room so that when their modifiers dangle, we don't have to be around uh, to see uh, him. I'll bet he's going to split uh-huh. her infinitive. Oh, come hey on. Okay, so before, before we get into grammar pun sex land, uh, I, <laughs> My favorite of all the lands, <laughs> right next to Candyland. <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah, I am grammar, this year yeah, grammar pun sex land hands out hangs out next to Candyland in like a a van with you know the windows blacked out. <laughs> Stranger danger. Sorry, John. How are you celebrating Shark Week? No, no, no. That's fine. I mean, you know, it's it's fifteen minutes into the call. I can I can I can wait. <laughs> No, I'm done. I'm done. I swear, I'm done. Okay. So this is so this is the thing I'm going to say just to. Oh, I thought you were going to cut me off again because that's the jerk thing you do. No, oh, okay, it's fine. Because <laughs> normally we'll we'll set up like these long silences and then someone will. Yeah, I'm I'm killing the joke. No, I the am ju- celebrating this the jerk thing that week. I do is comparing Pete to Hitler. <laughs> I am not Hitler. No, for the no, last I'm not saying, time. I'm not saying that you're Hitler. I, I, w- I was saying that you're like Hitler in certain respects. Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. John, you were saying something about Shark Week or something unrelated to Shark Week or about your nice apartment. <laughs> or, or something about the Nazis? I don't know. Uh, I am celebrating Shark Week this year the same way I celebrate Shark Week every year, namely jumping out of a pool of water and biting Samuel L. Jackson in half. Right. I feel really the, the old ways are the best ways. 
Yes, uh, I will be celebrating Shark Week by watching the Discovery Channel. And uh, if you want to let us know how you are celebrating Shark Week, you can call us at 20 Eat Log 01. That's 203 285 You can email podcast at overthinkingit.com, leave a comment on the show notes, or use the contact form on the site. And now, in what I am hoping will become a regular feature of the Overthinking It podcast... It is time for your weekly Jonas Brothers update. OMG. This has been well, your Jonas Brothers <laughs> update. I'd like to I'd like to apologize to anyone who's listening to this podcast with their headphones on cranked up high because we we just ruined your hearing for for the rest of your life. No, I'm sorry. it goes through. We do a whole compressor thing on it before before it goes out, so that'll be no louder in absolute amplitude than you know. But never mind. Uh, that that is uh, Joe Jonas. Crying, tearing up a little bit in a uh, performance of Gotta Find You uh, over Camilla Bell, who I guess he has uh, broken up with. And it, that was in Detroit. And that was, uh, I guess, last week. I guess that was last, last Sunday. Yep. So, uh, so. If, you, if, you didn't, uh, if you didn't get that, uh, it was like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what actually happened with the Jonas Brothers this week? <laughs> hey, 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 Matt, Matt. Yeah. So you, you said that you would be willing with me to have a, a stage reading of the brief conversation from the weekly Jonas Brothers conference call that took place between Jonas Brothers and reporters yes. on uh, their release. So you have that link open right now that uh, I sent you? Which one? The, uh, oh, uh, news, did it have a news transcript? Newschief.com. It just like starts at the third paragraph of the article. It's just like four lines. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, All right, then, so I'm going to start. Okay. Are you going to be the reporter? I'll be the reporter and you can be Nick Jonas. Okay. Got it. Yes. I'll okay, be. So, so a little prefacing. Kevin Jonas, and I'm going to read from the article. Uh, the Jonas Brothers are on the phone and getting a little testy about questions regarding current tours jump in ticket prices from 47.50 to 89.50. Kevin, at 21, the oldest Joe Bro, not a term I was familiar with, but apparently it exists, is explaining a theater in the round stage concept he helped design that makes the front rows stretch the whole length of the arena. I will step in as the reporter. <clears throat> okay, but how do you explain the ticket price? In this economy. And this is Nick Jonas jumping in. Um, uh, I think essentially we wanted to find a way to provide a bigger and better show for our fans. And this was just one of the ways we had to do so. Okay. 
So you don't have any concern about the ticket price? Sir, I think you've asked your follow-up question. We'd like to move on. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, I don't know. That didn't sound bad. Bad. Badass enough, sir. I think you've asked, sir. Uh, I think you've asked your follow-up question. We'd like to move on. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is a news story that that Nick Jonas told off a reporter on the conference call who was questioning the ticket prices. So, um, at any rate, that's big Jonas Brothers news, but not as big as the other Jonas Brothers news that happened. Right. Which, uh, if you're a person who suffers from diabetes, like I'm not. Um, but if you have diabetes, you are no doubt cheered up by the latest news. And can somebody jump in and tell us all about what happened with the Jonah brother, Jonas Brothers and diabetes this week? Absolutely. <laughs> I would be happy to tell you so much about the Jonas Brothers and diabetes. I'm That's so wonderful. <laughs> it's like my dream last night. This is like the dream I had last night where John Parrish was talking about diabetes and the Jonas Brothers. Except in my dream it was Hanson. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> Namely, that Nick Jonas, who, uh, who has had diabetes uh, since age 14, uh, testified at, what was it, Ch- Children's Congress, I believe? What was the name of it? <laughs> what is Children's Congress? Well, I mean, it, was it like no, legit it was, Congress? It was, no, it was, yeah, he testified in front of the, before the Senate, but yes, the, juvenile, right. the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, or I guess I don't really know the acronym, J.R. JDRF or something like that does uh, does what they call the Children's Congress, where they get kids involved in in lobbying for diabetes research. It's like the Children's Crusade in a lot of ways. Wait, so they have, they have children lobbying? That all of a sudden that sounds scummy. Yeah, I mean, even if it is for diabetes awareness, I guess it's not. Uh, yeah, I guess it's not. I don't know. I can't. It's indefensible. The practice is indefensible. <laughs> I mean, do we really have a problem with diabetes awareness? Doesn't, like, half the country have diabetes? Like, is this something where people don't know it? I guess people don't know it exists, I guess. I mean, Wilford Brimley did a pretty good job with it for a while, so I feel like everybody knows. Shouldn't we be moving on to, like, diabetes treatment and, like, care and, like, not spending time and energy on awareness anymore? That's, like, a public health question. And I I sort of ask it semi-seriously. Is, like, the primary challenge facing people... With diabetes and, and loved ones with diabetes these days, that nobody knows what diabetes is or nobody understands the, the scope of the problem. Well, I think there is plenty of work to still be done on diabetes awareness, but I do want to jump back for a second. Let's, let's zoom back and let's, let's think about, let's overthink for a second. Is that, um, what is it particularly about the Jonas Brothers and this news that has us overthinking it at this time right now? Oh, why is it important that the Jonas Brothers went to the Senate to talk about diabetes? Or that one guy went or to the Senate? It, or or what, what kind of appeal, do, what, kind of, what kind of enjoyment are we getting by talking about this in kind of a semi-mocking way? That, ha, 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 it's the Jonas Brothers and they're, you know, doing this and that. Well, this is oh, a special they, case. This is a special case of all uh, celebrities taking a stand on political issues, right? This is special in what way, though? That it is unusual or that... that, that uh, just because it's the Jonas Brothers. I, well, I think uh, it's... I, sorry, you go. Oh, I was just going to say that it's because the Jonas Brothers... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> you go. God, now we're all polite. <laughs> we're yeah, passing that, the... T- yeah, that, is, that, is, that is a cue like three people deep, so I, I better have something pretty cool to say, which I don't. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's merely the Jonas Brothers being in the moment uh, that, makes it, that makes it so interesting. I mean, were it... Were Hanson appearing before Congress to testify about, you know, diabetes awareness, it would not be, you know, it would not be worth anyone's time. 
<laughs> and yeah, Hansen back, would, I- would testify before Congress and say, uh, you know, Senator, uh, you know, Senator Feinstein, can you tell me? You say you can, but you don't know. Can you tell me? You say you can, but you don't know. Uh, oh. In an, in an umbop, it's gone. <laughs> I was going to say that it's because the Jonas Brothers don't have any authority. That The Jonas Brothers don't even have an authority over the music that they themselves make. Like, a Jonas Brothers concert, uh, what is this, this, uh, this, this uh, conference call they talked about, like, it takes 180 people uh, up to 10 hours just to build the stage for a Jonas Brothers concert. Do I personally believe that the Jonas Brothers are responsible for, like, coordinating this logistical effort? Like, do they have anything to do with why this is happening? Like, the, if the Jonas Brothers aren't even in control of their own musical career, how are they supposed to take control of diabetes in the United States and why should they be the people to go before Congress? Because, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a joke because celebrities derive a certain authority from their celebrity, but few celebrities have so little authority um, as the Jonas Brothers. I right. mean, at least who are, Angelina Jolie makes of the, uh, Who are products of the studio system, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. At least Angelina so, Jolie... Because I mean, the Jonas Brothers are... Yeah, yeah she makes movies. Angelina Jolie. Like, yeah. Like, it would be like if Millie Vanilli were going to speak before Congress, and then they pulled Millie Vanilli, and instead they send the people who actually sang the Millie Vanilli songs to speak before Congress. Like, which of those two, which of those two groups of people would you think has more authority to speak before Congress? The people that actually made the successful and popular music that everybody likes? Or, like, the two borderline homeless guys from Germany who dance around in the music videos, but who happen to be more famous? <laughs> and I will not do you the, the, the indignity of referring to them as Millie and Vanilli because that is not their names. It's Rob and Fab. Thank you very much. Yeah. Fab is dead. Peace be upon him. Oh no, Rob I don't is know. Dead. I don't know, girls. Would you rather see Millie Vanilli, Hanson, or the Jonas Brothers? <laughs> They'd rather oh. see the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> that, that that never, and by never I mean already gets old. And this has been your <laughs> weekly. Jonas Brothers update. <laughs> Moving right along. Before we, fully, no, wait, wait, before we fully move on this topic, I think what I find interesting about this audio clip that you've chosen yes. is that I, I'm pretty sure it sounds like it's like just recorded by someone who's in the audience. right? Yeah. And you can hear the voice... Of the two of like like uh, the girl who's recording and perhaps her friend yes next to her and you can, you can hear their voice distinctly coming out and it's like oh my god is that, that or the other it's an interesting cultural artifact that's all I'm saying yeah the the kids the kids today with their rainbow parties they uh, <laughs> <laughs> they bring their cell phones to the to the to the thing and whatnot the musical you know? concerts. What? to the big rooms where they play the music what i'm yeah. what i'm curious about what i'm curious about and this is another instance of why we need a female on the podcast because i think it's a question of females uniquely qualified to answer is the the concept which which really dates back at least 40 years but probably more to like the beatles first ed sullivan show of you know teenage and preteen girls orgiastically screaming uh to the point of of losing all sense at you know, boy, boy idols. Like what? I mean, I can, I can understand excitement to see someone and I can understand like really intense excitement, but I can't understand that more or less continuous screaming that starts when they come on and stops when they go off. Like, I mean the, I, I don't, 
I don't get it. I and I think I would understand girls better if I knew why that's a thing. Hey, so, girls, girls, can you explain it? <laughs> for Christ's no, but, sake! But, <laughs> for Christ's sake! The I clip is older than that at this point. Find another clip of girls screaming and mix it up. Mix, do a little DJ. Plug it in there, sample. I don't know. You got it. <laughs> I mean, ask Pete and you shall receive. Whoa. That's a different clip. Oh, my, my ears. <laughs> I mean, Sorry, I, mean yeah, I guess I, you guys I'm, are I'm wearing... A, I'm a, you guys I'm a are teen idol headphones. myself, and I'm used to having girls screaming at me like that, but just to hear it piped in in this such a manner into my headphones is really quite excruciating. I what say. is it? Yeah, what is it about the, the girls screaming thing? Was it for the Beatles or Elvis? That was the first instance of it, right? Like, in, in the 20th century, I guess. But, I mean, you can really... If you, 20th century, you go back and date it to, you know, Pope Pius II, actually, and really, that's the first No, you can, Pope you Pius can, II was after Elvis. You can date it to the orgiastic uh, rites of the Bacchae, you know, dancing uh, in the forest, frenzied in the arboreal darkness, tearing apart the arrogant lords of their soul's repression, uh, and bouncing while they do it. Right. In the uh, okay. you can you can trace it back to that and uh, Euripides, right? Euripides mm. wrote the Bacchae, right? Um, I uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head. Although I, I I'm glad that you quoted what you just quoted, and I appreciated it. <laughs> um, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Is it hysteria? Are we in a place now where women go crazy because they have uteruses again? Is that like what we're, <laughs> we're routing this to? Or is there no? <laughs> That's not a real medical condition. As long as they well, don't have happen. spasmodic transports, which was, that's what they used to call orgasms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but oh, in any man. case, if, 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 if a girl could, could get in the comments and explain to me, like why, why the screaming and why, why the constant screaming, particularly that would uh that would make things clear to me and and like it's quite a feat like what do you do do you circular breathe so that you can maintain the the you know continual <laughs> screaming without a break or do you do you arrange with your friends who are going to the concert ahead of time like okay i'm gonna scream for the first three songs then i'm gonna take a break so you scream for like overlapping songs three through six and right. then Jane, you tag in on song six, like as she's going, so we don't lose any volume. Is that what happens? I don't. Is that, I don't yeah, get it. it's like a chorus. It's like people singing in choral unison where they stagger breathe. I don't know. No, I want it to be. I want it to. I want it to be the circular breathing, so that we can make a Venn diagram with Miles Davis and girls at a Jonas Brothers concert, and in the intersection would be circular. <laughs> Did Miles awesome. Davis circular breathe? I always thought that was more of a saxophone thing. Or you know, one of those same jazz musicians. All the same to me. Oh. Hey, can you explain yeah, what circular like, breathing is for the people at home who don't know what it is? Oh, yeah. Okay, so if you're playing a horn, uh, you can you can uh, make a continuous noise by essentially filling up a reservoir of air in your cheeks and blowing that out while you breathe in through your nose. And it's something that um, it's something that's done by certain jazz horn players and also didgeridoo players in Australia, where to keep the noise going, uh, you do this constant. Um, you know, replenishing of the reservoir in your cheeks, and then and then uh, uh, and then breathing in through your nose while you while you you know send air pressure out your uh, out your cheeks. That's mm. what it is. 
Thanks. Appreciate it. We are here to educate as well as entertain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and now you're – yeah, no, we're edutainment. And that's uh, – I hope that's enlightened you about circular breathing. It's like Lamaz, but different. <laughs> Except there's no baby at the end. Yeah, you're just giving birth to art. Um, so it's a little speaking bit different. Of, the main goal is not all your pains. Speaking yeah? of circularity and things that come back around again. Well, okay. okay. There, there was a yeah. there was a trailer there was a trailer that made the rounds on the internet this week for a movie phenomenon from the '80s coming back around again. I am talking, of course, about Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's no. Snake the movie too, right? It's like oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I saw a trailer for what I'm pretty sure was a sequel to The Big Lebowski in a futuristic world. We're talking about the same <laughs> one, right? That's the same movie. <laughs> oh, and it's called – oh, I see. I get it now. So it's The Big Lebowski Part 2, The Tron Legacy, right? <laughs> got it. I got it. Okay, cool. I'm looking forward You're to it. You're out of your movie. element, Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Say so what you the laser cycle is not gonna the issue here. Yeah, tell me about the laser cycle, John. What were your feelings about the laser cycle and its place in cinematic history and its future? Um, well, I mean, looking at this trailer, I was, you know, the, 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 la- the laser cycle and the whole, you know, cybernetic chase looked a little more, looked more realistic. It looked more like people, like there were, there were little bits of like, you know, frizzy side of, side special effects like little lines trailing off of it little waves within the the light column that the cycles trace and uh and i i'm i'm hoping this isn't just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake because tron really isn't that great of a movie to be nostalgic about but <laughs> i i like i liked the original a little more in that there the the clear artificiality of of the the laser cycles in the original Tron, like it was clear that this is happening inside a computer. This is not a real thing in the sense that, if you'll pardon me, the the energy blasts that Iron Man fires are supposedly real pulses of energy. Like this is mm-hmm. this is clearly a simulated vehicle in a simulated chase. And what makes it so interesting is that in this simulated world, the effects are real. Like if you die here, you could for real die. Oh my God, get Jeff Bridges out of the computer, or apparently not. <laughs> but. Uh, so I mean that was that was the only thing I didn't like at first, but then they ramp it up to those sort of ominous overtones at the end, like ooh, so they had me again. So I'm I'm now again interested with Jeff Bridges mm. in the tra- yeah in the trailer in the trailer yeah. Here's a little bit from the trailer. That's one laser cycle, and that's the other laser cycle, and now they're riding their laser cycles. <laughs> this is fascinating. Tron would be the worst radio drama ever. I would not want to see Tron the radio drama. <laughs> and that's, like, uh, oh, you're playing laser frisbee. Okay. Yeah, I guess they really do. They really do amp up the stakes, though, right? Okay. This is just a game. Not anymore. It's not a yeah. game anymore. But I mean, what I, Tron, Tron wouldn't make a bad radio drama. I mean, Flash Gordon wasn't that a, a radio serial for a while? So they had to narrate like a lot of the the space stuff, like Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. They were radio. Mm. They knew they knew back then in the olden days how to narrate drama. 
Said John. Said John Parrish, mopping his brow. <laughs> so if we get away from the visual representations of the inside of a computer via the putting of neon stripes on people's shirts and the mm-hmm. scenery, um, we get to the core narrative of Tron. We get to Tron, what Tron is really about, that we can articulate it without the visual effects and gags. What is Tron really about? <laughs> I mean, I've seen it, and I'm curious to hear what everybody thinks. I feel like, John, you've already sort of said your piece a little bit, but if you have more to elaborate on, because I feel like you have a correct opinion, although a controversial one, in saying that Tron is not a good movie, um, because I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> it's, controversial, but, uh, it's controversial among people who would be in our audience. There's a certain confirmation – there's a certain, like, selection bias among people who talk about Tron. And that right. selection bias is people <laughs> right. who like Tron and or have seen Tron tend to talk about it more than people who don't give a rat's ass about Tron. You know, there was a Tron ride at Disneyland until about three or four years ago. Why did they take it down if they're going to do Tron Legacy? Well, I guess so. Maybe they'll put a better one. It was taken down as part of the whole renovation of Space Mountain and the elimination of the People Mover, which is one of the great tragedies of Disneyland. You can no longer get in a slow-moving cart that travels in a kind of lazy circuit around uh, Tomorrowland. Oh, no. That is unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so, John, what is Tron about? Okay, so 1982, you know, Follow me back to the far, far future of 1982. So, oh, sorry, sorry, not that far back. Never mind. Okay, go ahead. So it's got it's got Jeff Bridges as you know this sort of hip rebel computer programmer named Kevin Flynn, uh, and his nerdier, less cool friend uh, Bruce Boxleitner, uh, and they're they're working for this software company designing. Uh, you know, designing some, I guess, defense and engineering contracting software. And the software company is run, but sort of assisted by this thing called the Master Control Program, or the MCP. Uh, Flynn finds out that there's some corporate wrongdoing, but he gets somehow digitized inside the computer, which is this sort of feudal techno-dystopia run by the MCP, like some digital god. Uh, so it's... It's Flynn uh, and Bruce Boxleitner's uh, security program, Tron, hence the, hence the name of the movie, uh, who have to fight their way across this digitized landscape into uh, and destroy the MCP and get Flynn out of the system. Uh, so he apparently gets out and, you know, he survives and shit's cool. Uh, but then apparently in, uh, in this trailer, like, he's back in the computer again because he's, you know, look, he's... It looks like he's inside the computer looking down on the light cycle game. Mm. Yeah, he's so he's I, like the head honcho now. Right. So wait, so, so is Tron in the end, is it about corporate ethics? Is that what Tron is about? It's about like <laughs> corporations that, that don't ethically conduct themselves in the marketplace and like the links that they will go to to turn into electrons and murder the people who try to expose what they're trying to do? Or, or is, it, is it more that a framing device and it's really about the joyful experience of playing Snake from a first-person perspective? It's about... Um, it's about the love. It's about a love that the man can have for an anthropomorphized version of several thousand lines of assembly line code, <laughs> uh, which was the, really the only way to get anything done back in 1982. Um, but one, by the one way, just, just... <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. The the one thing I am curious about, and then I'll I'll shut up for a bit, is that you know um, 
the popular conception of what a networked computer is capable of has changed vastly in the, you know, 27 intervening years between the first Tron and what will be the second Tron. So, you know, people, people had to be told a lot of what computers were capable of in the 80s, and now they, I think they have different expectations. So I'm wondering what the stakes are in Tron 2, because in Tron 1 it was just, okay, let's, let's destroy the MCP before it, uh, before it takes over the Pentagon, which was one of the things the MCP wanted to do. But, but more immediately it was just, hey, let's get out of this computer we're trapped in. So it was a very personal quest, you know, one human being and a couple of, of programs dressed like Bruce, Botley, Bruce Boxleitner. God, that's a hard name to say. Uh, trying to just, trying to survive. So what, what Captain are Sheridan, if you want. Just call Captain, him Captain Sheridan, Sheridan. Yes. <laughs> Babylon, Babylon 5. <laughs> so my question is, what yeah. are the stakes going to be in Tron 2? Like, what are they, you know, what's, what, what's at stake here? Why is, why is Jeff Bridges coming back? Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, because I mean, one of the big things about Tron is that this computer, despite the fact that it's mostly a database program for a corporation, um, has internal gladiatorial combats, um, which which don't really make a lot of sense, and they're not really explained. Why is it that the computer? I mean, yeah, sure, it's able to to maybe uh, you know use some have some control function over a certain apparatus, right? That it, in the real world, but there's no reason why in the first movie the computer like decides to stage these games inside of itself. So is it that computers are intrinsically whimsical and like all computers are really computer games? But Tron never explores that. Um, yeah, no, I'd love to see what the stakes are in the second one. I'd love to see why Jeff Bridges is back in the computer. I'm not optimistic about there being a good explanation, but I'm sure there'll be one that'll allow our children in their own podcasts about Tron Legacy 3 to continue to joke about the fact that Tron doesn't exist for any given reason and nobody remembers any of the stuff that was happening in the first place. Hey, Jeff, uh, Jeff say- Bridges is hanging out in like the Skynet VIP suite that, uh, that the half-man, half-machine, uh, all-heroic robot from Terminator Salvation inhabited briefly with the, the disembodied face of Helena Bonham Carter. Anyway, mm-hmm. It is very similar to that, but Jeff Bridges is really back in there to get his rug back. Yeah, it really, really pulled tied the, whole, the room together. It tied together the network. Yeah, exactly. No, I, Why I not everything have to be such a travesty it? with you, Tron? <laughs> am I not the only person who, every time I see Jeff Bridges in a movie now, um, can't stop thinking about Lebowski? Even Iron Man, where he looks nothing at all like his Lebowski character. I'm like, oh, it's the dude. But then no, when, he does look, the of- in this trailer, he looks more like the Ironmonger than he does look like the dude. The no, Iron really? Monger? Isn't that who he was in uh, in Iron Man? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he's sitting down like on the floor of a room in kind of like loose clothes, right? Like he seems fairly dudeish. He's got the beard going on and the long hair, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah, there's like a lot of yeah. a lot of dudeitude going on there. Yeah, very mm-hmm. much. Dudeitude. But Pete, to answer your earlier question, uh, I mean the the one reason a computer might stage gladiatorial games, the first thing that comes to mind is. When Google, for instance, runs a search query, it sort of does an internal test on itself, like which local server am I going to send this query to because it has servers all over the country. It's like, okay, which one's dealing with a lot of traffic now? Which one's more likely to have that data? So perhaps that's the MCP's way of testing internal resources. But like, all right, which which program has the best uh, readiness as determined by this, mm-hmm. this light cycle battle? John, you should have written Tron 2. 
<laughs> Although I do say, <laughs> I've been telling people that for years, but no one wants to read my fan script. I have a friend actually who I believe is the nephew of the guy who wrote Tron and refers to him as Uncle Tron, um, but I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember which friend it is, and I feel terrible about that. So if you are the friend of mine who has an Uncle Tron and you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> please identify yourself because I know that and you're not the only. I don't think it's the sole writing credit. It might be the sole writing credit, but yeah, I mean he you know retired to uh, to a decent life. I will say this about Tron though: it's got quality acting, and the way that you can tell Tron has quality acting is that. Bruce Boxleitner is the less cool friend of Jeff Bridges, and it's pretty impossible in the real <laughs> world to believe that Bruce Boxleitner would be less cool than anybody. <laughs> than any given person, much less Jeff exactly. Bridges. Exactly, exactly. So, so Tron Legacy. The legacy of Tron is a, is a legacy of of combat and of special effects and we're all gonna we're all gonna see that movie just like we all saw Crank 2, right guys? I did see Crank 2. <laughs> Oh, you saw it? Oh, okay. I, I ended it, right? up seeing it on on TV. Well, on video. Oh, it's out on. Oh, it's. I guess it, it was, came no, out a while ago. Sorry, I probably I've said too much. Oh. <laughs> so you went into the MCP and you uh, you got yourself a little bit of uh, electronic crank two action end of line. <laughs> <laughs> yes, something something like that. And I watched it while I was packing. Fair enough. It packing was a, what? It was. <laughs> <laughs> Heat. It was a good. Yeah. It was a good uh, packing boxes movie because you know, mm. any time I looked up, there was likely to be something entertaining on the screen. Mm, mm, mm. All right. Well, I think we have some listener feedback, and it's high time that we got to the listener feedback. So let's uh, let's go straight for it. And here is a uh, here is a question about baseball because you know I guess it's because our nation's pastime is it really popular culture I guess baseball is more popular culture than any of the popular culture that we talk about certainly more popular than Tron <laughs> uh, and here is from a listener Hey Over Thinking It podcast team this is Gab I'm currently in Las Vegas and I will email you my latitude and longitude along with some links to some articles that have kind of inspired this topic that I'm going to pitch at you, and that would be baseball. Haha, <laughs> pitch. So uh, Gab's latitude and longitude are 36.16 uh, degrees north by 115.26 degrees west. Continuing on. See. There have been all sorts of headlines about the juicing and the scandals lately. So even if you don't follow baseball, you have to be at least vaguely aware that there's all kinds of bad going on. So I'm just wondering if you guys would comment on the status of baseball nowadays and if you think it's losing its cloud to America's pastime or if you think this will all just kind of boil over. And she uh, follows up in her email with a Huffington Post and a New York Times article, and she says, given the disillusionment of fans because of the strikes and ethical failures, uh, is it losing its position as America's pastime, or do you think this water this will water itself down in due course? Blessed be, Gab. To hey Gab, to it, take a what's, stab what's at going that. On, what's going on, Gab? Is that a Wiccan thing, or is that your your personal? Uh, is that just your personal thing borrowed from the Wiccan community? Just With the blessed be. Yeah, that's that what you're talking that, about. It's, yeah, it's probably a probably a Wiccan thing. Yeah. Guessing, Anyhow, guessing that. Yeah, to answer, to answer your question, uh, I don't. I don't think the current round of, of steroid release, uh, steroid news release, will dampen Amer- 
baseball status as the American pastime any more than prior steroid uh, information, like uh, A-Rod coming out as a steroid user, or, you know, Mark McGuire, not confirmed but long being suspected, or Barry Bonds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, I mean, it, it has taken some dings over the years, but baseball remains one of the few almost uniquely American sports. I mean, it, it has made it has made great headway over over in the Far East, over in Japan, for instance, but uh, but not not to the same extent that uh, actually no, I guess I guess football, professional like American football, is more of an all American sport than uh, than baseball is. So not uh, maybe, not oh, football. Not, but, not, uh, not footer, not footer. No, no. But hmm. I thought I had a point. I don't know if I do. Someone else but, take over. Footer uh, is I'll that say, some kind uh, of like? Uh, is that some kind of newfangled uh, you know internet social communication device like Twitter? I'm not familiar with footer. Ha ha. Uh-huh. Right, I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say two things about this. One, I resent people calling it the steroid era as if it were over. It isn't over. A lot of people are still doing steroids. If the people on my high school football team, which wasn't even the first in its division, were doing steroids, not all of them, but if there were people like in my high school doing steroids, there are probably people in Major League Baseball who are doing steroids. Nothing has been done to stop them. Nothing is being done to stop them now. And just and it's the same thing as the financial crisis. You can, you can say, oh, it's over because the people have suffered for it. They haven't. Send these people to prison or kick them out of baseball, and then you're going to start seeing something. Also, second thing, Bud Selig has presided over the wholesale destruction of everything good about baseball. Between 1992 and now, the sport has been degraded and debased and destroyed. Um, you know what? In 1992, if you had a baseball card, that was worth something. You know, and it, because it carried with it a certain cachet. Bud Selig is a hack, and he needs to be driven out of town on a rail. And Major League Baseball, the monopoly that it is, since it's not not really operating the free market, needs to be entrusted to owners who are going to practice the sport in a legal way in accordance with the law of the land of the United States and are not going to defraud its audience and promote the use of illegal substances and other illegal activities in order to boost their profit margins. And until that happens, you know what? I I was raised a Yankee fan and a big baseball fan. Love baseball. Love the lore of baseball. But until we see some repudiation, real repudiation of the disgraces of the last 15 or 20 years years of this sport i'm not interested anymore you can take your ball and go home you know i'm gonna keep this ball you hit it through my window i'm keeping it all right that's what i'm saying right now and and freaking smug i'm i live in boston right and these smug holier than thou red sox fans who think that their team was the only one that wasn't doing it get over yourselves your team was cheating too everyone was cheating of course they're cheating i mean yes the best people in the sport you know maybe 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 the fact that you Take performance-enhancing drugs is going to affect whether or not you win. Just a wild, crazy shot in the dark. But I'm not going to get into how steroids work in terms of training because it's complicated and it offers too many people excuses. So I'll step away and I'll get less angry and I'll go back to eating some Mako Shark and lighting some candles. <laughs> wow. Mark Lee. He, he, uh, not to nitpick, but well, this is a nitpick-friendly zone, is it not? So... Um, not, I'm going to get at your kind of central point there at a, in a second, but to loop back to what you mentioned about um, the value of a baseball card in 1992 and how it's not worth anything now because of the lack of because because it doesn't have the same cachet as it does. I would say that that's not really so much related to the loss of prestige of baseball as it is just to the fact that in 1992 there was just simply a bubble market, a classic bubble market for baseball cards and that sort of collectible. And you see the same thing with like TY baby beanie babies and other collectibles which, you know, 
took on artificially inflated prices. Um, if anybody remembers the Beckett, their Beckett baseball card pricing guides, and you look it up and it's like, ooh, I got a $2 Ken Griffey Jr. Inset, insert card here. Um, that all turned out basically just to be a classic bubble market, I mean, and, or unless anybody else has any information to the contrary to that. My personal experience of it was not that the prices collapsed because of a market function, but that the prices collapsed because of a large-scale loss of interest in baseball after the strike of 1995, was it, or 1990s? Really? 1994, 1995. Yeah, well, because remember what happened. There was a big strike, and and the ratings for baseball went way down. Interest in baseball went way down. And this was this is part of Bug Selig's policy. Bug Selig, Bug Selig, the owners love Bud Selig because you know they he does everything that they want him to do. Well, he wasn't um, he was an owner himself. He was the, the owner of the the what the Brewers. The, the Brewers. Brewers. Yeah. And beca- and because he takes problems that would call, be bad for business and he shoves them under the rug. Um, and you know what happened is that baseball suffered a huge decline in popularity that only resumed after the steroid-enhanced home run derbies that took place in the late 90s. Um, I mean, if you remember the sort of downswing and the upswing with uh, Merrick Maguire and Sammy Sosa, I mean, that I, I'm not willing to submit that that historical of like that historical wave didn't happen now granted the price of baseball cards in 1992 specifically was probably inflated that's probably right but i mean people collected baseball cards in a meaningful way you know from the you know 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s and 90s and i i really felt like after that strike it was kind of the the the, the camel's back was broken because um, huh. people there's just the magic of it was gone i mean that was my perception and maybe that was just because that was my own I was 15 at the time, you know, and that was when I was experiencing it. Um, and that's, you know, I was cherishing my Don Mattingly rookie card at the time. You know, like, maybe that's just me. But other people have other experiences of it, you know, share in the comments. Is there, Pete, do you um, think that, like, with, what, yeah. else can, what else can he do, really? Like, uh, Faye Vincent, who was commissioner of baseball before Bud Selig, uh, wrote that, um, you know, because of, like, for example, with most of Barry Bonds' troubles being off the field, and I'm quoting verbatim now from the Wikipedia article because I know nothing about baseball at all, uh, and with the strength of the players' union now, there's nothing he can really do, and that he's largely, and this is a quote from Faye Vincent, uh, largely, quote, an observer of a forum beyond his reach, unquote. Now, I guess that that tortured syntax does not belie Faye Vincent's uh, Yale education, but moving right along. Is there anything he really can do? Well, I think you can consider if – I don't really believe that the players' union presents a, a, an, an, unattain, an unattainable obstacle um, for this one specific piece of policy. It is perhaps true that you would not be able to get the players' union to make concessions along these lines without giving them something else. Um, I mean, are the players really going to go to the mat just over steroids? And I think that what you also have seen is a decay in the labor relations in baseball and, 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 a, and, a, and the, uh, the way that the contracts work between the players' unions and the owners. Granted, it, it had worse times, and there were, you know, there were this lawsuits about free agency and stuff like that and how um, the way that it used to be done was violated the, the rights of players. But um, certainly the way that it's done now and the way that negotiations are handled now, um, the whole system as it's been put in place, you know, maybe – in the way that Bug Selig thinks about leadership and feels about leadership, he doesn't have any options. But, you know, if you're in charge of the whole league um, and you're, you're not in a position to fix things, um, you're still the leader and it's still your fault. I mean, that's my opinion is that if you're in charge of things, um, you're responsible for what happens. And if you're not given the power to, to fix things, then maybe you need to make a broader appeal to get that power. 
right? Like maybe he should say, oh, I really need the power to do random drug tests of every baseball player and then kick them out of the league for life if they ever fail one. Um, maybe he needs to make a broader appeal. He's never made that appeal because he's a businessman. Um, and baseball is business. It's not a game. You know, it's business. Um, and of course, it's always been a business, right? But there was always part of it that was a little bit better than a business. You know, over time, there was this legacy, this Tron legacy, if you will. <laughs> I, I agree with I agree with you about the the breakdown in in labor relations between uh, between owners and, and players. And it has it has admittedly been worse in the past. Like contracts used to be used to be much more difficult to get out of, and you you had a lot of players who were sort of virtual virtual slaves to the franchise they signed with. But it has it has gotten worse. It has gotten worse, I think, within our our lifetimes and our fandoms. And it it makes me wonder at times if the slow, quote unquote, accidental releasing of names like these to the to the media every couple of months or so. Because bear in mind, all these all these names of people who are being outed as steroid users can't, are coming off of one list, a supposedly anonymous but actually very well named uh, list of 102 major league players who tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, not just steroids, mind you, PEDs of, of all sorts, uh, during a 2003 survey. So uh, you, you have to wonder if this is something the, you know, the Major League Baseball is doing to sort of keep the uh, the players' union in line because it is it is a very effective weapon they can have against them. You know, in that this information exists somewhere, they can leak it out piecemeal as needed to put players in harder spots. Because because news like this affects the players' union as a whole, not just David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, second thing uh, regarding performance enhancing drugs, uh, it is. It draws some kind of interesting questions because, I mean, on the one hand, there are things like anabolic steroids, which, you know, if taken to the level that many professional ballplayers do, will will destroy your body from the inside. Uh, but you've also got things like human growth hormone, which is an elite is a banned substance in professional baseball. But based on based on the medical stuff I've read, is not nearly as bad for you, if bad for you at all. I mean, human growth hormone is the same stuff that Sylvester Stallone used to get jacked for uh, for the latest uh, Rambo movie. HGH has some problems um, with causing with uh, cancer, specifically, I think. But um, I mean, obviously, you have a certain amount of it in your own body, and it has to do with who mm-hmm. takes it and when. But I, I think I remember. I mean, I think it does have some um, some side effects having to do with like speeding up the growth of tumors. Um, it, it increases the risk of diabetes. Um, it has enough things wrong with it that you probably don't want to take it, but like that's probably neither here nor there. Okay. Um, and yeah. the the third the third and last thing before I jump off for a while is you know Pete you mentioned you mentioned Red Sox fans uh, as a as a Red Sox fan myself you know I will I will defend my team but at the same time anyone who saw David Ortiz hitting three thirty two in two thousand seven and then hitting two sixty four in two thousand eight and losing like forty pounds between those two seasons and hitting like a dozen fewer home runs and didn't think for a second hmm what what could cause a man to lose three <laughs> pounds between seasons and hit a dozen fewer home runs and it's not just a torn meniscus in his right knee. Uh, anyone who didn't make that connection, I'm sorry. I have I have no sympathy for you. No, no, no. I mean, Hold on a second here, John. Now, we like to say that in retrospect all the time. You know, not just in baseball and everything like that. It's you know, it's like afterwards, it's like oh, anybody who didn't see that one coming. You know, it's like for example, this is the very kind of a far far off example, but the whole the thing with the Korean scientists who had faked the uh, the genetics results. 
Yeah, like, <laughs> that you know, was hilarious. In retrospect, there's so many things that pointed out that that person was cheating, but everybody just ignored all that and just because because there's a there is a fundamental part of the human spirit that wants to believe. It mm. really just wants to believe, and um, and that's the same thing in play. You know, every time we you know step back and say this is a fraud, the same thing with Bernie Madoff, right? Mm. You know, people say look back and say you know 10 percent returns every year. People should have known that's a fraud. And retrospect again is true. You know, we look at the ball players as well. So you know, I I don't want to you know to to put the blame on all you know all the you know the the, the dumb baseball fans out there who thought that um, that you know there was everything was hunky dory back during that time because that's everybody. That's all of us in some ways. That that is that is true. Although I did I did have at least a couple of friends. Now bear in mind these people were Yankees and Mets fans, so their their judgment is questionable to begin with. But there there were, <laughs> there, there were there were friends of mine who in two thousand eight were saying, oh you know he lost four, he lost forty pounds between seasons and he can no longer hit. Hmm, I wonder why. Now to be fair, Mark, you have called me out. At the time, I I wasn't quite certain on it, but I I listened to what they were saying. Although I. I reserve judgment until conveniently uh, this week when it became obvious to me. And how could you not have seen it? Mm. Yeah, and I'm not so, you know singling you out. I mean, I, I would say that the same thing is applied. You know, would apply. No, no, to no. Me. single me, single oh, me out. It makes yeah. for a more interesting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I'll single you know, I'll single people out. Wait for it. Who? Wait for it. Various members of the Third Reich. But here's another thing, though. This people people say this isn't a problem just for blank, as if it somehow makes it go away. But this isn't a problem just for baseball. And I mean, the NFL has a much better record of of keeping tabs on these things. But I'd be really surprised if there weren't, you know, s tons of drugs in the NFL too. And it's it changes the landscape of professional sports and what professional sports is and what it means. Right. There's no there's nothing that says that we always have to have professional sports in the way that we value it. Just because somebody happens to have the name on the jersey doesn't necessarily mean the team means the same thing. And I think that what we're witnessing in our society now is that professional sports is changing into something entirely different. And it's relevant because a lot of people still like it, but I don't watch it as much anymore. I'm well, not I think just... a lot of a lot of things are changing into something uh, remarkably different. Oh, I guess that's just sort of the, the march of time. Right. But Shark Week indoors keeps swimming and never stops because it would die. <laughs> you know, if, if someone could somehow, you know, harvest sharks and take, like, their, the genetic capacity in them that keeps them from getting cancer and give that to baseball players. Oh, that would be great. That would be, a complete, that would be completely safe. You know what you could do? You could get it. You could make it extra efficient, right, by getting the sharks and growing them to giant sizes and also artificially engineering sharks with giant brains. And then that, that would, would that make would be you really great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could get Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Let us move on to our next letter. Daniel from Brisbane, Australia. I love we are we are huge down under. Uh, (laughs) You know you know who else is huge down under? Uh Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) I was gonna say uh, Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) (laughs) Um yeah, no. Who else is huge down under? Yahoo Serious. <laughs> Hugh, Jack- Hugh Jackman. We, we don't need to list everyone who's huge in Australia. We can accept that there are some people who are huge in Australia we might not know. Oh, I was thinking Bruno. Uh, okay, so Daniel from Brisbane, uh, watching a trailer from Up the other day. This occurred to me. Movie essentially looks like Gran Torino. As made by Pixar. (laughs) 
except with balloons and wacky adventures instead of racism, gang warfare, get and off rape. My lawn. Get off my lawn. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to read that. I, I think we may have been blocked in that thing. Yeah. Like, except with balloons and wacky adventures instead of racism, gang warfare, and rape. <laughs> wow. There was no rape in up. What movie was I watching? <laughs> uh, is, there t- is there a reason why two such movies would come out at the same approximate time? Well, hold on, Daniel. I'm not sure they did come out at the same approximate time. Gran Torino was a uh, Gran Torino was an Oscar. Was a 2008 Oscars movie, and Up was a 2009 summer movie. Uh, within within six months of each other. I'd and say he fair. says he says it's also. Uh, uh, D- Daniel says he is a little disappointed that there was no episode overthinking Harry Potter in honor of the sixth movie. There's a lot of food for overthought there. And uh, then he said in a second email, he said, uh, could it have something to do with the baby boomers getting older and not understanding, as rather put it, those darn kids and their rainbow parties? <laughs> it's, you know, if you don't know what he's talking about, uh, Google, no, don't Google, go on Amazon and search for rainbow party to see, uh, to find rainbow party, a classic of contemporary young adult fiction. And, uh, oh, I also, so I, did you guys see the Harry Potter movie? I hadn't seen it. No, no. actually, my roommate was going to go see it this afternoon, but I didn't get a chance to go. I had to run some errands. I, yeah, I haven't. If you if you want to, you can read uh, Anthony Lane's review on the New Yorker website, which I thought was a pretty good uh, a pretty good summary of a lot of the a lot of the issues that were there. Anthony Lane also, speaking of uh, people who are huge down under, he had a great review of Bruno. That uh, re- that really took Sasha Baron Cohen to task for r- rather than using his prodigious talent to uh, for satire to actually satirize anything, um, he uh, does this farce about bringing poop to a table, and it's apparently yeah. even it's apparently even worse in Bruno. Yeah, he's incorrect, but that's all right. <laughs> you should write the New Yorker one hell of a letter, Pete. I, I should just be like, dear New Yorker, I respect your attempt, your brave attempt to review Bruno, and I encourage you to try again next time. But unfortunately, this time you are incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it. Signed, Peter Fenzel. Is uh, uh, Peter was was Bruno though? You've accused certain of the like the Judd Apatow movies or movies of that ilk of being like uh, a farce masquerading as a satire. Yeah, I mean, I I think... um, And is Bruno like that? I think when I was making that distinction, I was talking about the the tone that we think about satire uh, versus the tone we think about farce and the sort of action of the comedy and the the book of what happens. But again, I guess that... That um, because there are because Bruno is very farcical, but I think Bruno is definitely a satire. Um, but it's not a satire that comes to a positive conclusion about humanity, and it's not a satire of. It's like a satire of something that we're fairly uncomfortable satirizing, which is like huge attention whores, um, and like celebrities and like self adoring celebrities and people who feel entitled to to do these things. Now, granted, it's not a savvy uh, satire satire of like the American. You know the American public along the lines that the New Yorker would find comfortable. Perhaps New Yorker doesn't see the satire because New Yorker doesn't like to criticize things like that, and it it likes Borat because it agrees with Borat. It doesn't agree with Bruno um, and what Bruno has to say about like going out there and making a spectacle of yourself. Well, Anthony, I mean, I, yeah, I mean Anthony Lane is British, and so I think he has. I think he also has a particular uh, particular take on Sasha Baron Cohen in the 
in the the sort of the world of British comedians specifically. Like, and, I feel like when Bru- when oh sorry um, yeah what were you saying? I'm done. Oh, so when Bruno sits down with, like, the Israeli and the Palestinian on each side and, like, attempts to solve their problems by doing an interpretive dance and having them touch his face, like, I feel that there's satire there. Like, I feel like he's saying something about, like, the way that um, diplomat celebrities feel and about their own influence. I mean, it's like the Jonas brother going in front of Congress. Like, that's sort of what Bruno is, is satirizing, is, like, the, the, like, the things that people who consider themselves to be beautiful and famous feel like they have the power and authority to do. Um, and, and it's, and the way that we reward them for it and the way that we love them for it and the, and the way that we, we celebrate them and scandalize them and all this other stuff. And, and, uh, I mean, it's not as intellectually robust as Borat is, I guess, but, um, it's definitely not just a bunch of poop jokes. Um, I mean, there's, there's a purpose to it. Uh, I mean, I feel like he wouldn't have gone to the trouble of interviewing that crazy terrorist if there weren't a point to it. I mean, he could have done poop jokes with some much less compelling people. He almost raped Ron Paul, for Christ's sake. Like, that's politics, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was uncomfortable, if anybody saw, saw that part of the movie. <laughs> uh, but let's answer, uh, let's answer Daniel from Brisbane's question. And he, uh, we have his lat long on a previous podcast, so you can go through uh, podcasts in reverse order from this one until you find it. Uh, up and Gran Torino within six months. Okay. So in other words, the question is what? Is there a direct connection or is it just a coincidence? Because if that's the question, definitely, I would say definitely the latter. Um, it's a very interesting coincidence, though, and I definitely do applaud Dan from Brisbane from, for, for pointing that out. I mean, it's certainly historically relevant to have an aging American from like the baby boomer era and like a young Asian kid and them confronting each other and being kind of uncomfortable with each other and what they mean to each other. Because it says a lot about contemporary politics and like global politics, geopolitics. Like, oh, there's this Asian guy on my doorstep that I never knew was going to be here because I didn't think he was part of my neighborhood, but he is. How am I going to deal with him? And uh, Clint Eastwood is like, I'm going to shoot a shotgun in his face, and then I'm going to make friends with his sister or something. And the guy from Up is like, you know, we're going to go on a crazy adventure together and learn about love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to see the guy from Up fight Clint Eastwood. Um, I feel like that would be a fun action sequence, like sort of a Roger Rabbit style thing. (laughs) <laughs> well, Clint Eastwood had a gun in that movie, so it wouldn't quite be a fair fight. He has a house on a string. <laughs> That's got to be worth something. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else should yes. talk on top of me. I've been ranting too much. I've been pontificating. No, 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 the the, rants, the rant. rants get us great listenership. I think when my rant about Taylor Swift uh, garnered more comments <laughs> <laughs> about, and I will say it again, Taylor Swift is the worst singer-songwriter in contemporary American <laughs> popular music. So much so that to dignify her with the name of songwriter or singer, for that matter, I think does injustice to both things. She is a journal chanter, a journal <laughs> writer and journal chanter. Matthew, uh, would you be be less offended if she only claimed either singer or songwriter, but is it both specifically that offends you so much? I don't know how much these uh, these these kids today with their rainbow parties and their multi-platinum <laughs> records, I don't know how much they write their own music. Like, I get the sense that the Jonas Brothers write a song or two on each album, and maybe they have, you know, professional help or something like that, uh, but... 
that they are actually involved in the construction of the product. Uh, yeah. How would you feel about Taylor Swift if all of her songs were written by Jim Steinman? Who wrote like all the songs for like Meatloaf and Celine Dion and all of this stuff? Which she can be better. Monster Brown, in other words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who should speak before Congress? By the way, I would love to hear what Jim Steinman. He's like Jim Steinman is the Michael Bay of like sentimental rock and roll. I think is what it boils he, down doesn't to. Doesn't he write like Kelly Clarkson songs or something? Or he should because those well, are probably. masterpieces of sentimental rock and roll. And actually, Michael Bay directed a bunch of Jim Steinman songs and music videos, so it's more than a superficial, uh, more than a comparative connection. But um, Kelly Clarkson has taken it. In other words, um, are they? I would say that they're both very baroque in a certain way. And that Kelly Clarkson songs? No, I guess not. This this recent. Have you heard this recent Kelly Clarkson song? I don't hook up. (laughs) There's a kind of weird. There's a kind of weird return to you know Victorian sexual mores. Well, right. I can tell you. I can tell you from personal experience that's not true about her. Heyo. Heyo. <laughs> hey, uh, actually, because she doesn't I'm, hook I'm, up, she's never going to get sucked into the computer like Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy. Um, that's a uh-huh. one. Not a very successful one. Uh-huh. Not all callbacks are successful. Be careful, kids. When you're out there playing with callbacks, you might land on <laughs> might land on one that doesn't work, like Kelly Clarkson being in Tron, which I would watch if she were in Tron. If it was like yeah, she was singing, how could she be in Tron? She doesn't hook up one computer exactly. to another. She can't. Hey-oh. <laughs> oh, Matt, that was hilarious. Matt, that was so hysterical. <laughs> no, God. Gosh, oh, darn wow. It. Yeah, you know who else was all mocking and faux sincere? Hitler. <laughs> we really got to stop God winning our podcast like five <laughs> Yeah. So, Daniel from Brisbane, I think we just offered you the least helpful answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question though it's a wonderful question but i feel like it's a question that answers itself sort of by being awesome and by being awesomer than any potential answer did and any of us see both grand torino and up no nope maybe so that's what it is maybe maybe they figured that nobody would see both movies so that by making both movies they could cover everybody <laughs> and everybody one or the other it was like it was a, 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 yeah, a four quadrant strategy Exactly, exactly. Hey, uh, uh, Anthony Lane's review of Bruno in The New Yorker is called Mein Camp, by the way. It's, you know, <laughs> uh, it's pretty clever. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anthony Lane thinks Bruno is like Hitler. Actually, isn't there a joke? Uh, isn't there a joke in there? Um, there are at least there are Hitler jokes. There are a bunch of Hitler jokes, Hitler. right? At least two, in which he compares himself to Hitler. Something about like you know the the um, just like the other you know famous and daring Austrian before me, you know now I have been scorned and mocked by the rest of the world. Or yeah, like uh, just um, yeah, uh, for the second time, for the second time in a century, the world has turned on Austria's greatest man just because he tried something different. <laughs> That's yeah. So I guess Bruno has Godwinned him himself. That's our, you know, all of life is already already. Briefly on that point, I didn't find the Hitler references to be particularly constructive, or uh, I don't know, constructive probably isn't the right word, but out of place. to all the other references and satire. I'm sorry, go on. No, the, the, it was just distracting. If anything, it was just like you know, just uh, you know, Austria, Hitler just played off for cheap cheap laughs and shock value, and that's it. Yeah. No. Yeah. 
I was saying they were probably referencing sort of sideways the Bruno Ali G sketches where he would do the in and house with uh, whether they were like, is it in or trained Auschwitz? Because Bruno has like a proud tradition of referencing Hitler in his comedic sketches and getting other people to joke about it. So maybe that was just sort of a part of his vocabulary, I guess. I don't know. I don't right, know. I'm recalling those, you know, the, 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 those things from the Ali G show. But I guess even going back further to that level, right? Mm. Um, you know, I guess that's just speaking to, you know, making the character more shocking. And maybe there is some value in that. By making, it, making the character more shocking, then you increase its capacity for satire. I'm just kind of, well, you know, shooting it out I there. Mean- in the old Ali G, he was being more of a Borat character, where he was saying, the point was, he was asking a fashion person whether, like, a particular kind of pair of pants was, was like, worthy of being sent to a concentration camp and gassed with its whole family. And, like, the, the, what the interviews showed were how superficial the fashion people were. Because they would be like, oh, trained Auschwitz. Oh, tell me. You know, it's like, like you're, you're <laughs> for, they're, they're doing for real what Bruno is doing for, for laughs. Um, and it's just basically showing that they have no sense of scope. Right, it's that they have no sense of scope about what human existence and the scope of human existence is like, and what people go through because they are totally fixated on the rules of their own games and the and their own sort of like f- fame and and popularity that they court. That they are so insular in their own social circles and their own values of themselves that they don't have a context for understanding like actual important things in the actual world. Um, I feel like that was the essential joke about Bruno on Ali G, and he carries a bunch of it over into the new movie, right? Where it's like, but it, he he gets away from it because he doesn't can't do as many candid interviews anymore. You know, he can't do as many interviews with people he can trick um, because um, yeah. they already did it so many times. So yeah, there was one scene, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie, but um, in which uh, he basically takes people. He sees how far down that line he can take people, and he does it just. It's, it's such an. You it, get so far down the line. It's kind of like almost like the Milgram experiment, seen before your eyes in the, in the kind of the fashion celebrity context. It's quite horrifying. Well, I guess no one could do the Milgram experiment anymore in the actual academy, in the you know scientific research community. So that we have to uh, we have to do it in our popular entertainment now. Well, if you uh, if you want to hook us up to electrodes and shock us, uh, or you know, tell your friends to shock us uh, until you know they stop or don't, we don't hook up, Matt. We don't hook up. You can email us at podcast at overthinking com. Call us at 20 eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. That is since our international listenership is so huge, we should tell you that that is an American phone number. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's plus one. Two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Leave a comment on the show notes, and I will rant more about Taylor Swift if it gets more comments on the show notes. Or uh, use the contact form on the site. What site is that, you ask? Well, why don't you visit us there at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. The Master Control Program treats objects like women, man. You know who else subjected the popular culture to a level of scrutiny you probably didn't deserve? Anthony Lane in The New Yorker. (laughs) Yeah, him.